Hey, welcome to the Word Weaver podcast, a place dedicated to the powerful web words weave and the deep layers they uncover. Here you'll find a compilation of tips, tricks, and words of wisdom from writers, authors, creatives, and entrepreneurs. Basically, cool people doing cool things in the world and how they've used words as weapons of mass creation and inspiration. You'll also hear from me, your host, Louise Johnson. I'm a former marketing maven in New York and Switzerland. I left a lucrative job to follow my dream of becoming a writer. It's a never-ending journey, so I figured we should all be in it together. I've learned a lot along the way, but it's a constant evolution. My favorite part is how little by little, letters turn into words, words become sentences, sentences become paragraphs, and before you know it, you've created something from nothing. And whenever that happens in life, it's nothing short of magic. So grab a coffee or a glass of wine, and let's dive into today's chapter. Bryn, I want to welcome you back to the Word Weaver podcast. It is crazy. I had to look up our last episode. We did it two years ago. Come on. Are you serious? Was that long ago? It was that long ago. I thought it was last year, but it was September 2018 that we talked for the first time. Time flies. Yeah. So crazy. I know. And in, in that podcast, you, um, the woman before Wallace, the working title was People Like Us. Mm-hmm. So you were still working with that. And you, I don't think you had your agent yet. We were both in the same boat. And we were that was the next step for us in the, our author journeys. You were trying to shop it around and get an agent. Yeah, that sounds about right. Signed with her like late September 2018. So I might have been, I think I was probably in conversations with her at the time. Yeah. And then it happened rapid fire after that. And you got a big five publisher, which is what every new writer dreams of. Yes. I was very, very lucky with that. Um, That came in January 2019, I believe. And did that process feel long for you between getting an agent and getting a publisher or was it also new? It's just exciting hitting each of those milestones. You know what? It felt actually a lot shorter than I thought it was going to be. Like, you know, you hear people say it takes two years from like submitting the book to the publisher to getting it published. And that timeline was shortened. And you also hear people say, you know, from getting an agent to signing with a publisher generally takes like about a year. And again, that timeline was was fairly short for me. Um, I was really lucky. I did a couple of rounds of edits with my agent um, when we submitted it. And we didn't cut it down too, too much. I believe we started sending it out at like 130,000 words, something like that, with the understanding that she was sending it out to half of her list of prospective editors thinking, okay, if nobody takes it at this length, we'll know that we need to cut it down. Right. So yeah, when the editor, when my editor, April, picked it up, uh, she's with Mira, um, which is an imprint of Harlequin and HarperCollins. Um, Mm -hmm. When they picked it up, we went through another, I think, two rounds of edits with her to cut it down to its current length, which I believe is around 110,000. And is that large still for historical fiction? Or is that pretty average? It is, but historical fiction's got a bit of like, I think it's got a little bit more flexibility in terms of word length, um, just because there's so much backstory that you t- tend to need to fill in 
when you're writing a book about, you know, a real historical setting, real historical people, real historical events. You have to give the history, but also make it a juicy narrative at the same time. So exactly. But so basically you had what every writer, it's a dream scenario for your debut novel, I would say. Would you say that as well? Um, It's been amazing. I've been so lucky. And I think a lot of that just had to do with um, timing. You know, right now we've got, there's a lot of interest in royal stories because of the crown, because of everything that's going on with Harry and Meghan. And I think as a result of that, um, it just happened to hit that zeitgeist, which is so great for me. Like really, really and truly, I had no idea that this was going to happen when I started writing the book. I don't even think the crown was out at the time. I think the closest thing no. that we found was Downton Abbey. Yeah, you're right. Um, and then all of a sudden, all of this royal interest to kind of spur up was just honestly beyond what I thought would happen, which was so great. Oh my God. It's perfect. It's perfect mesh of timing, but also talent. I mean, the book, oh, regardless of if the crown ever came out, it's incredible and I'm fully biased. Oh, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. And I I have to actually tell you, this is news that I just got. Um, It's the (gasps) number one best-selling Canadian fiction book right now, according to the Toronto Star. Britain! Yeah, that was today's news. Oh my God! Ah! Right before this phone call. This is breaking news. It actually is. (laughs) Britain, you're the number one best-selling Canadian in the Toronto Star in your first week. It just launched last, not even a week, or a week ago. Yeah, a week ago. A week ago, which is just- Holy shit. Yeah. Congratulations. That is freaking huge. Thank you. Thank you so much. Honestly, it was- Oh my God. Again, this is like not stuff that I expected. Writing, like being stuck in my writing cave for years, kind of expecting nobody to see it, for it to go here is just, it's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts. And this is the reward for all of those years of working in solitude, never knowing if it would see the light of day. Like this is, these are the moments I'm so excited. And that's what I was kind of telling you before of why I really wanted to hop on the podcast this week, because I'm super nostalgic. You're also nostalgic. We get along in that sense. Oh yeah. And I just think it'll be so cool when like your 20th book, we can look back on your debut (laughs) novel the first week and you're already hitting national best-selling lists. Like, it's insane. Well, I mean, I remember talking to you, I think, like, probably in the, our very first time that we met up and had a glass of wine together, you said to me, um, have you written your holy shit list? And mm-hmm. I thought, what is the holy shit list? I've never heard of that before. And you explained it to me that it's like those, those benchmarks of writing where it's like, holy shit, I finished the manuscript holy shit, I, you know, finished my first edit, I got my agent, I got my editor, um, that sort of those sorts of milestones. And this is definitely one of those holy shit milestones. So I got it. And I immediately thought of you because I was like, I've got to tell Louise, it's another holy shit moment. (laughs) You probably don't even have that many more left on your list. You're just checking them off left, right and center. Oh, I still got a pretty big list. (laughs) I remember it was cool. You saw somebody or one of your friends saw somebody reading your book on the subway in the wild, which is the coolest thing ever too. When strangers are reading a book with your name on the cover. Well, and it was so early on in the process. It was a galley. Like I think it, right. it, it must've been someone who either worked at HarperCollins or who won a giveaway, something like that because the book wasn't out yet. And my friend was on the subway 
And he sent me this picture of literally just like, it was sort of this woman with this woman's lap and she's reading the woman before Wallace. And it was again, a very, very much a holy shitless moment. Well, speaking of holy shitless, what was the feeling like? Cause it's still kind of fresh in you of walking into chapters Indigo, which you walked into as a kid and then going to see your book on the hot new releases table and on shelf under fiction author T for Turnbull. Oh, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And it actually happened not in the way that I had expected because the book was meant to come out on July 21st, uh, which is, I think it's a Tuesday. And a friend of mine called me and she called me on the Thursday before and said, hey, I just got a note from Indigo. They said your book's ready for pickup. And I thought, well, that's odd. It shouldn't be. It's not for another couple of days. So I called up right. Indigo, you know, Indigo at Bay and Bloor and asked them to look and see if the book was out on the shelves. And they told me it was. So I jumped up and was like <laughs> running out of the house almost before I hung up the phone, going to Indigo to see it. <laughs> and, you know, the plan had been on Tuesday, I was going to go to Indigo. I was going to have some friends with me. We were going to do this whole like, you know, woohoo book. And nobody was in town at all on the Thursday. Instead, yeah. it was just me going. And it was almost kind of better that way because I just got a little moment and I, you know, stood in front of it and had a bit of a, you know, bit of a tear up, bit of a misty little, little time looking at my book on the shelf and thinking like, oh my God, there it is. That's where it was meant to be all along. And it looks so nice on that table. Looks so wow. And I have to say, Indigo has been so unbelievably supportive of this book. I mean, all the indies have too, but, you know, for Indigo to get behind it in the way that they have is just so, mm-hmm. so wonderful. Oh, that's amazing. That's literally every writer's dream is walking into that bookstore, picking it up, feeling it, rubbing your hands over the gorgeous cover. Oh, yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. Did you go back with family and friends after yeah a couple days later once uh once it was kind of officially launched into the world I went back and uh and looked at it and you know I've signed copies in sort of uh you know I told you at the beginning of this call I'm actually up at my family cottage right now so I've been doing sort of the slow drive up to the cottage and hitting as many bookstores as I can along the way just to sign books because I don't think the novelty of that will ever wear off Never. So our bookstores, I guess they're open now. It's stage three with COVID. Mm-hmm. You can go into them and sign and everything. Yeah. Yeah. They're not doing in-person events. So it's literally just, you know, me and a few nice staff members pulling the books off the shelves and I'll assign them all and then they put them back up. So, so cool. yeah, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not a traditional launch in the sense that I'm not able to do in-person author events, but, you know, we've pivoted online and it's it's all still working out, which is good. Yeah, and hopefully down, I mean, in months it's extended and you can do all of those in-person events then. But that was definitely a question I wanted to ask you was, how has it been? This is your, the guinea pig author for virtual book launches mm-hmm. versus in-person. It's a brand new territory and you've pivoted beautifully. But how has it been for you? Pros, cons, what do you feel about this? new world we're in well it has it has definitely been a shift um it's been a shift for all writers whether you're a debut or seasoned everybody who has had a book come out kind of since february has been thrown for a loop and i have to say thank god that you know i wasn't 
launching in February. I've got author friends who launched like in the week of lockdown and, you know, it's been very difficult and it's, I think it has impacted their sales, but again, you know, they've been pivoting. And I think for a lot of these books, the solution is to give them a long publication tail uh, as opposed mm. to the lead up and make sure that those books stay on people's radars um, just longer and longer and longer to give them the attention they deserve because so many of these books, so many of these writers are incredible. And, you know, this is like a thunderbolt coming down and, you know, smashing right into all of their plans. And and that was very much how I felt too, looking down the line and seeing into July and realizing that this was not going to be a situation that had resolved itself by the time my book. Yeah. But because I had that kind of long, longer timeline, I was able to accommodate it and my publication team was able to come up with just brilliant strategies for dealing with it and for making sure that the book was going to get a lot of attention um so for example one of the things that I did and this was just on my side um the publisher wasn't involved in this but they've I think they're they may be doing stuff with it a little later on one of the things I realized is okay people have a lot more time to kind of engage with books right now. You know, everybody's reading a lot more. People have a lot more free time. Yeah. And so this book, all of the research that I did, I was able to put on my website in kind of deep dive featurettes because, you know, I've been in that situation before where you reach the end of the book and you go, God, I don't want that world to end. I don't want that story to end. You know, in terms of a making lemons into lemonade moment, it was, okay, well, I'll put all this up on my website and hopefully that'll help drive some interest that'll help, you know, spur people towards this time period, increase their curiosity about it. So I've got all these little featurettes on my website about, you know, the fashion of the 1930s and, you know, cocktails of the 1930s and um, a bunch of the locations and architecture in the book. The fashion one is my favorite personally, because I'll go through and I'll tell you like where, you know, which dress inspired this moment in the book. What was the, you know, the long van dress that she's wearing in this scene where she and Duke go to a party, which I actually was able to find online because Thelma kept incredibly good. Like she wrote a really great autobiography and she talked about these dresses and she talked about, you know, exactly what they looked like. This is what fashionable socialites in the 1930s were wearing at the time. So all of these featurettes, I'm going to be featuring them one by one on my website. And that's another kind of, probably 12 weeks of content right there if I were to parcel about week by week oh that's great yeah and it's just you know it's having things to talk about that aren't just here's my book cover buy my book buy my book buy my book because that gets very old very quickly particularly at a time when we're all just looking at screens so if you can pivot if you can find different entry points to your book for people if you can find different ways to keep them engaged on social media um, it'll be interesting to see how that all turns out but I think it'll be really helpful Yeah. And you're right. Like the silver lining is more people are reading, more people are online and looking for ways to escape and be a part of this magical 1930s glitz and glamour realm. Exactly. I mean, that's the beauty of historical fiction is it is it's escapism in its most elegant form. You know, it's you're able to go and you're able to see this new world. You're able to experience it. And you know, you're able to learn something at the same time at the the risk of sounding like a teacher. You're able to learn something too. Yeah. But that, I mean, I'd be curious to see the Google trends of Wallace Simpson, how much she's spiked in people's search terms just to 
get even more of that because they're real people. The Vanderbilts, the Morgan, it's crazy. They're all real people. And Wallace Simpson right now is kind of enjoying a resurgence anyway because of Meghan Markle, like the Duchess of Sussex. Everybody's drawing those comparisons. I have a Google alert set for Wallace Simpson and every single day there's something on her. I was going to say, do you have a Google alert for Wallace and for yourself now too? Yeah. It sounds so vain, but it's literally just, okay, I want to know if, you know, I want to know if anyone's talking about the book. I want to know if there's any features. How did you sleep the night before uh, the book launch? It was only a week ago. So I'm sure the feelings, I mean, has the adrenaline worn off? Did you sleep? I did, but it was very much like a sleep, the sleep of a kid before Christmas. You know, I was so excited to wake up in the morning and get moving. And, and there was a lot, there was a lot of anticipation and there was a lot of almost anxiety as well, because it was like, okay, I know that this isn't Christmas where I go down and there's a present on the table. It's Christmas where I go down and I have to hustle all day to make sure that everything gets out to where it goes. And I'm thanking the people I need to thank that, you know, everything runs smoothly. And Obviously, the publishers have a. The publisher does most of that, but I also I'm a bit of a control freak, so I need to know that I'm doing as much as I can at the same time. Yeah, it's your baby. It's my baby, exactly. So it, you know, it was a day of responding to comments and looking at the reviews as they went up and and all that, which was so exciting. But definitely, definitely a busy, busy day. At the end of the day, I, I kind of collapsed with a glass of wine and went, "Oh, there we go." what had you wanted to do before COVID? And then how did you end up celebrating it? You also had the launch event with another Harper author. Yes, with Alka Joshi, who wrote The Henna Artist. The plan had been way back in our pre-COVID era. I'd planned on a book launch at the Broadview Hotel and I'd booked a venue and it was going to be this lovely cocktail party with family and friends who'd been supportive of the book. And Obviously, that didn't happen. Instead, we pivoted entirely online, and pivoting online meant um, I was able to get to ask Alka Joshi, who is this unbelievably incredible author. She's also a debut. She just hit the Reese Witherspoon book club list for the Henna Artist. I think she hit that in May, and uh, she agreed to help me launch the book, which was so nice and so unbelievably gracious of her. But the beauty of doing that, instead of doing, you know, the cocktail party with family and friends as I'd planned, was all of a sudden this launch event went out to a much, much larger audience because Alka Joshi's, you know, it was run on Alka Joshi's Instagram page. So Alka Joshi's followers all got to see it, um, which, you know, spurred interest for them in the book. I was able to put it on my website and that again has spurred a lot of interest. That very much was a silver lining moment where all of a sudden the book's been amplified beyond what would have happened otherwise. And I I think that that, again, is one of the great things about moving on to the virtual world for these events is you don't have to be physically constrained. Like I did another one earlier this week with uh, Chanel Clayton, who wrote The Last Train to Key West. And Carrie Mayer, who wrote uh, The Girl in the White Gloves about uh, Grace Kelly. And we partnered with a book club in San Diego, Warwick's Books. And again, it was very much like not constrained by place anymore. So we had people from all three of our home communities, as well as people 
just online looking, you know, looking for something to watch. That is so cool. It's been, yeah, it's been really interesting as far as, as far as this, you know, crazy, weird, mixed up time is, this has, this has actually turned out to be a good launch, which I'm so grateful for. Oh, yeah. And I mean, this book deserves the best launch. It's amazing. Have, have you found that your interview skills have, like, it's an old hat for you now after this week, because you've just been on the go so busy. I've definitely got sort of my set answers to things a lot more so than I had before which mm-hmm. is which is great but whether my interview skills have improved I'm not sure I look I recently watched a video I had to put together a video for Harper Collins where I was reading a chapter or an excerpt from the book and listening to the amount of times that I said um made me realize okay so my skills aren't that much better we're always our harshest critics oh, anyway God, yeah absolutely Have you been surprised at what readers have taken away from it or what parts they really love and the questions that they're asking? Or are they kind of the same parts that you loved writing? Um, That's a really good question. I think it's sort of half and half. It's interesting to see how many people gravitate towards Gloria Vanderbilt's story as opposed to the Royal Romance. Because for me, the Royal Romance was the most interesting well, not the most interesting part. The most interesting part really is the relationship between uh, Thelma and her sister, Gloria. But how many people gravitated towards the Vanderbilt trial as opposed to Edward and Wallace Simpson and that whole side of the story. So that was definitely a surprise for me. The other thing that was a surprise for me was actually listening to the audiobook version of The Woman Before Wallace uh, because it was produced and, you know, this incredible voice actress, um, she did she did the book. And hearing how she reads it as opposed to how I read it, hearing these different cadences in it and different emphasis on different words, different sentences was just so interesting to me because it was like, that's not at all how I would read it, but you've brought something so different and so new and so exciting to this story that I thought I knew front to back. That is wild. Such an interesting point. Yeah, it was so neat. Are you surprised too, even when you hear them back, you're like, wow, I wrote that. That is a great sentence. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because, you know, you can do it on the page and it looks exactly the same on the page every time because you know how you wrote it. And then all of a sudden hearing somebody speak it to you, you're like, wow, oh, yeah, that was a good, yeah, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that sentence. Yeah. The metaphor analogy that I use is kind of like you prepare this beautiful gourmet dinner, you slave all day, you're chopping, you put the finishing touches on the presentation, and then people sit down and they devour it within like 10 minutes or something. (laughs) It's kind of like a book, like you labor over it for years, finessing the words, and then the exterior, the cover presentation, and then people devour it and it becomes their own. Like they take what they want from it, which I just find a very interesting piece. Do you feel a little bit like you have let it go? It's no longer yours. It's up for interpretation now. Or how do you feel about basically your gourmet presentation now (laughs) being devoured by the masses? Well, I mean, it'll always be my firstborn. (laughs) So I think there will always be that sense of, you know, that sense of ownership over it, that sense of protectiveness over it 
but at the same time, one of the things that I love most about writing is the fact that there are so many different interpretations that people have and people bring their own experiences to books and that colors how they read them. Like I think about all of the times that I read, you know, Animal Farm and every single time I read it, just because my life experiences have changed, I get something different out of it every single time. And isn't that just such an amazing part of reading? And that's the alchemy in it is the, the relationship between the author, the words, and the reader is different for every single reader. That's, that's what I find just so magical about it. Back to the woman before Wallace. Um, I want to know about the characters. Which for you was your favorite to write and what was the most challenging character to write? So my favorite characters to write, it's a bit of a toss-up. I loved writing Avril Furness, um, Thomas' stepdaughter. She is, I could have a whole, I could write a whole book on her. She just kind of jumped out of the page. She's such a dynamic individual and she had such an interesting, tragic story that I wanted to make sure that that was told properly and honored properly in the course of writing this book. Cause I think that Avril and Telma had a really, really special relationship and I wanted to make sure that that shone through. So she was definitely like number one favorite character to write. Cause I think I identified with her most. Um, but then the other character who I loved writing was actually Duke. I didn't expect to like him as much as I did when I started writing the book. I knew Duke was a philanderer and I was going to have to write about his infidelities. And so I went into it thinking, okay, well, he's a villain. He's going to be a villain in this. And as I started to write him, as I started to get to know him better, I realized that no, really, he isn't a villain. He's a guy from a different generation on whom the rules were changed. He married into the younger, a younger generation. He married someone from a different cultural background who didn't share his, you know, his experiences and his cultural kind of attitudes towards infidelity. And so it wasn't so much this man who was evil or, you know, callous. He was someone who thought, well, this is just the way that it is. And that's how it's going to be. You're right. He's a byproduct of his environment. And you almost can't fault people for that in a sense. Yeah, he's a byproduct of his environment. And then on top of that, you add in the fact that not only does his wife turn the tables on him by going out and having an affair of her own, she turns the table by going and having an affair with the one man who he could never compete against yeah. Prince of Wales. So badass. Which is incredibly <laughs> badass. It's incredibly badass for a woman of that time to so completely change the the rules of engagement. Um, mm-hmm. To put it in a bit of a pun there. I think that Duke ultimately always thought that they would end up back together because that's what you did. You had affairs and then you'd come back together and it was fine. And Thelma wasn't she just wasn't going to do that. And so at the end, you know, he, he turns into quite a tragic figure in my mind because he never expected any of this to happen. And he certainly didn't expect it to happen in the way that it did. You really brought out the humanity in his character. Yeah. I like that you said he was, you started out thinking he would be the villain and then you get to see multifaceted sides of him. Well, I mean, I think in 
in art as in life, no one is a total villain. And it's difficult right. to, you know, it's difficult to maybe understand someone's motives if you don't know them and if you're not willing to kind of do the, the grunt work to figure out what those motives are. But with Duke, who was a real person who did actually, you know, live and breathe and love, it felt very necessary to me to honor that properly by doing that legwork and understanding exactly who this, well, not exactly, but understanding who this man was and how his relationships developed. So that, that was really important to me um, to do that properly. And then in terms, in terms of a character who I found difficult to write, Gertrude Whitney, I found her quite difficult because her motivations in the book weren't as clear to me. There's a scene early on in the book where Thelma goes to help Gloria um, during the sale of assets, of Reggie's assets in Newport. And originally that scene did not have Gertrude in it. And I realized that by not having Gertrude in it there, Gertrude didn't have a voice throughout the whole book. She was just there as sort of this specter in the courtroom. And again, it was, okay, well, that just turns her into a pantomime villain. I don't understand her at all. She's just, it, it feels like she's just being manipulated by Laura Morgan. And that doesn't, that's not enough for me. So I went back and I rewrote that scene and I put Gertrude in it. And she was actually a lot more interesting than I thought she was going to be because she starts talking about consequences and the consequences of one's actions and the consequences of Reggie's actions and how they impacted Gloria. And that all of a sudden was, okay, here we go. Now I understand her. She is, she's nuanced. She takes pride in how she comports herself and how she uh, presents herself to the world. And in the actions that she takes, she's deliberate. And that's why she goes, that's why she's willing to kind of go after little Gloria in the way that she does, because she doesn't see Gloria senior is sharing those motivations. So she, she went from being this villain to being someone who made sense in my mind. Yeah. The characters really come to life. You must miss them a little bit. Oh my God. I really do. I wanted to ask you, because personally for me, even rereading my book, I found and editing it. I was like, Oh, I really like to edit the descriptive detail scene setting. What for you comes the most natural to write would you say or what do you enjoy writing the most oh setting absolutely I kind of think of my books the way that I think directors think about their films I like to look at the visuals I'm a very visual person so I like to be able to kind of sweep into a scene and get that sense of the feel and you know what is it that I'm seeing what are the details that I'm focusing on that for me is so important because if I don't if I can't imagine myself there, then I'm not going to believe it. Nothing else will kind of follow from that. So for me, it's very much the setting. Once I have the setting, and particularly I think for historical fiction, that's doubly important because you're not just writing a setting that comes out of your own imagination. You're writing a setting that people are going to be coming into with a preconceived notion of what that setting looks like. People know the 1930s. They've seen the 1930s in their own 
contexts in different movies and different books. So you have to be able to hit that properly. And if you can't hit those kind of touch points, I think the world, all of a sudden you can see the seams in it that the writer has, has created building that seamless illusion of time and place is it becomes of paramount importance. And then from there you can go into your characters, you can get their sense of, of, you know, dialogue and their sense of character. But for me, it's very much setting motivated. Um, and, and on top of that setting informs your characters because a character in the 1930s isn't going to act the same way as someone in 2020. Right. They're going to have, right, exactly. they're going to have different, um, you know, cultural and belief structures and all of that feeds into how they, how they act and, and the choices that they make. Yeah. Well, you did a beautiful job. It's very, very cinematic. I feel transported into every scene and it's really a delight to read, to be honest. It's so nice. Thank you so much. That's so nice. Um, Well, can you tell us about the cover design for your book? It's gorgeous and it's so arresting on a table. It is. I am so blown away by what the art designers at Mira did for me. When, When I went through this process if you want to call it that it was one step for me it was opening an email seeing that cover and saying it's perfect don't change a thing and oh my god that is so cool it it was it honestly felt as if they went into my head and picked out exactly exactly what I would have done if I had any knowledge of uh, the visual arts which I absolutely do not you know it was it was so nice going in and being like that's that's it you did it and they chose your shade of green. They chose my they chose my shade of green. And green books, you don't see green books as, as often, you know? You see a ton of blue books. And and so for it to be green in and of itself is just so lovely for me. Yeah, that's one of the things that I thought was really interesting you told me. And now all I can see when I walk into a bookstore is the shades of the covers and the majority are blue. So the green ones stand out. It's really cool. I never looked at books like that but that's now all I can see is the spec color spectrum yeah it was really neat I actually went in and I got to meet the cover designers who worked on my book because I just was so thrilled with their work I had to you know and they offered me a meeting with them over coffee I was like absolutely and they took me through some of the other cover treatments that they tried and you know they talked about the different books that would be on the shelf and psychologically how do you want what do you want your reader to think subconsciously when they look at your book? What do you want them to align it with in their minds? Um, you know, what's it going to be competing against on the shelf? And all of that was just so interesting to think about the psychology of book cover design, which I really hadn't ever considered before. Don't judge a book by its cover. Everyone judges a book by its cover. Everybody does. And, and we're in such a golden age of covers right now. There's so many incredible cover treatments that you see that you just look at and you go, I have to have it. I wonder if that's a byproduct too of social media, everything, there's bookstagram, you're seeing everything online on the website versus walking into the store as much. Oh, I think that absolutely has a lot to do with it because like, I, I think of the number of books that I see on Instagram before I see anywhere else. And if it is this beautiful, colorful, impactful cover I'll pre-order it immediately. I have to have it on my shelves, not only as a book, but as a piece of art. Yes. Oh, yeah. And it's so arresting. Also, just the title, The Woman Before Wallace, the alliteration, 
it's every it has everything yeah I know the the col- well the the title actually was interesting too because as you mentioned at the beginning of this when we first spoke it was called people like us mm-hmm I had initially started the book out as the woman before Wallace that was its working title and the feedback I got from uh, someone in my in my creative writing program actually was that it didn't give Thelma enough agency which I was like okay that's interesting so I changed it and then it turned out that, you know, just by fluke, uh, another book had been signed to HarperCollins called People Like Us, like the week before. No way. I didn't know that. So I was like, okay, well, I got to change it. Meant to be. Yeah. And the, you know, I, I was thinking about it and I kept coming back to the woman before Wallace. And then I got a call from my editor saying, so we've been thinking and the title that we like best is The Woman Before Wallace. And I hadn't told them that that had been my working title. I hadn't told them that that had been a title I'd thought of. And I kind of went, oh my God, you've got to be kidding. We started revisiting The Woman Before Wallace. And and as I started thinking about it more and more and more, it became clear to me that it was the right title, not only because it has that beautiful alliteration in it, it's got the two W's, um, is also because this is a book about women who don't get to choose their titles. It's a book about... Oh, I love you know, that. Like, like Wallace Simpson has been tarred by history as, you know, this shrew who stole the king from his throne. Gloria Vanderbilt has been, you know, has been sent down in history as the unfit mother. And Thelma too, she's been written into history as a, as a footnote, as literally the woman before Wallace. And so in, in that sense, it just made so much sense to me as a, as a title that we went back and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm in. I like it. I love it even more now with that back background insight. That's really cool. I meant to ask this earlier, but does it, with the royal family, does it make your views on kind of the Meghan Markle situation and the comparisons going on? Does it change your views on the royal family? What do you feel about modern day royalty and the monarchy? I've always been fascinated by the royals. Um, I've always really enjoyed sort of the pageantry of it all. I think that the monarchy, not just British, but any monarchy, it's sort of the longest running soap opera you can find. (laughs) Long storylines, long drawn out storylines, dynasties that rise and fall. It is very much... You know, a soap opera. So true. With the modern royals, we're seeing a lot of those storylines almost recycled, right? We're seeing shades of Edward and Wallace in Harry and Meghan and their actions. I mean, Harry and Meghan, though, it's a, I find that a difficult comparison. It's, it's a comparison that I understand, but I don't think it's entirely fair. Because, first of all, Harry quitting the firm does not have the same implications as... King Edward, head of England, head of the Church of England, as well as the state, um, abdicating. It just doesn't have the same. I mean, I think I think Harry's was was sixth in line to the throne, so it's not like he ever would have gotten it. Yeah, exactly. It's not apples to apples. It's not apples to apples. And on top of that, you look at the appalling racism that Meghan Markle has had to deal with, and it makes it makes Harry and Meghan's decision to leave so much more cut and dry not entirely cut and dry but so much more cut and dry you know people are still reducing it back to you know the wallace simpson days where it was 
you know, here's this witch of a woman who's come to steal our king. And I just don't think that's a fair comparison to make. Not at all. They love to place these women on these pedestals and then tear them down. Yeah, it's always the woman's fault, right? <laughs> always. What is, what's wrong with our world? We're in 2020. I know. Yeah, because Harry had absolutely no reason to want to leave. I'd be cool, though, if we see, uh, if they ever read this book, you know, those paparazzi photos where celebrities and you have Meghan Markle <laughs> with the woman, the woman before Wallace under her arm or Harry. That'll be cool. Oh, my God. That would be a moment for the holy shit list. Not that I'm advocating for those paparazzi invasive photos. I think that's a gross part of fame, but mm-hmm. it's still fun when you want. I like to know what celebrities are reading. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. That's what been one of my favorite things in COVID. Everybody, you kind of see their living room on Instagram or their bookshelves. And I'm always like, what is, what's behind like Tom Hanks there? What is he reading these book? days? What's that book? Oh, I know. I do too. It'll be cool to see Bryn Turnbull, your spine there. Oh, that, yeah, I think I'd faint. Um, so I would love to ask you about the craft of your writing process. I think it's it's just interesting to hear the differences and the similarities now that you're a famous best-selling author. You can officially say best-selling author. I can. That's pretty cool. That's so cool. Also, before I forget, have you spoken to your old Scottish professor, John Burnside, who was instrumental in the beginning days of these books or has anybody from the woodwork in your creative writing days at St. Andrews have they reached out to you yes yeah they have actually um one of my old colleagues there reached out to me when the book came out actually no I think two two or three of them have and it was just so lovely to hear from them and um I, I, I got their names in the back of the book and you know I've acknowledged the fact that this you know with their help this book became what it did um, and as for John, I actually, I sent him an email on the day that the book came out and, you know, he wrote back and said, I, you know, he sent back this absolutely lovely, lovely email. And so he, I think I sent, I sent him an advanced copy, but he's got a, um, he's got another copy winging his, its way towards him now. I was like, cause I remember going into his office when I was a student and looking at the bookshelf behind him and it's absolutely crammed. And so many of the books are from former students. And I was like, okay, mine's going to be there one day. <laughs> and it came full circle mm-hmm. a couple years later, which is crazy. That's the coolest thing about this too, I think for me and why I'm just so, I'm like beaming over here, <laughs> smiling about it because I just know that feeling of when you were at St. Andrews, you had the idea, you believe in it so strongly and you have a few other supporters, but nobody truly if it wasn't for you sitting your butt in that chair and pushing this story through all of the self-doubt, it is very lonely. And it is the time where you're reaping the fruits of that labor and that solitude. And it's just, it's an amazing thing because you didn't know then. I mean, you have an idea, this is your dream, but to see it actually come true is so vindicating, I'm sure. It really is. You know, there's no guarantees, right? You, you start a project like this and you're starting it on faith. You have to be your own biggest cheerleader because you're the one that's getting up every day. You're the one that's sitting your butt in the chair. You're the one that's writing the words. And then you're the one that's pounding the pavement once the book is written. You're the one going out to find an agent. You're the one, you know, re- who has to figure out all of those steps. And you can get guidance along the way, absolutely these things don't happen without guidance and without helping hands. 
But if you aren't your own best advocate, if you aren't waking up every morning going, nope, this is going to happen. It's not going to happen. You have to believe in yourself. Absolutely. It's what I, it's absolutely what I wanted, but it's not, I, I never dreamed that it would kind of happen in the way that it has. And it's only just the beginning. It's, oh. I mean, it's all your hard work. You're so humble, but this is, this is very well deserved and it, the way it should be happening, but it's so cool to see it unfold in real time. It's neat. It's really neat. Yeah. I keep having to kind of stop myself and, and go, no, remember this, remember this moment. Yep. Pinch yourself. Yeah. Are you keeping a diary or a journal of kind of each day remembering things? You know what? I'm not because I have so much that I need to do for book two. I'm in the process of writing that on deadline. So I'm still very much, I kind of took two weeks to just do book launch stuff. And now my second book is kind of tapping at the back of my head again, going, Hey, remember us? It never ends. It's you're just pounding the pavement and then back into the writing mode. Back into writing. And that's okay. That's the the life I want, right? I want to be, I want to be doing this forever. Forever, yeah. So you're you're an authorpreneur. You you have put on the business hat, the marketing, and then you still have to go back to actually writing word after word to get that second book out yeah, there. Yeah, because again, it's not going to happen unless you, you know, unless you sit down and do it. So how is that? How you're spending your days now? It's kind of split between promoting book number one and then. Are you able to have a typical writing day right now or in the near future? In the near future, I think I will. Um, right now, I'm kind of splitting my days. I try and do, you know, all catch up with emails in the morning, schedule stuff out on Instagram, do all the marketing stuff that I need to do in the AM. And then in the afternoon, I kind of try to just put my head down and, and write. But today's been a great day because um, speaking to you is the only thing that I had to do. And other than that, I've been able to kind of dive back into the, the second book and look at it again and go, oh, okay. Okay, this is looking okay. This isn't looking as bad as I thought it was. Yeah. So is it, how is it, how are you finding the writing? Do you think it's hard after, because they don't they say your second book is more challenging or is it easier because you have that confidence that your first one made it to shelves? Oh, God, no. God, no. Um, <laughs> This, that's good. That's reassuring. So you'll feel everybody, no matter how seasoned, you'll always feel this. I think, I think that you will because the second book, there are expectations now. The first book was just me right. tapping away in my basement. This book is me tapping away with the knowledge that there's money attached to it and it has to perform as well as the first one. And if it doesn't, then, you know, then what, what does that say about me as a writer? So there are definitely much greater stakes I'd say attached to the second book than the first because all of a sudden it's oh well she's got to do it again and if you can't do it again then you know oh I guess she was just a one-trick pony no one hit wonder I do not want to be the one hit wonder of historical fiction (laughs) never though but I I don't even think I mentioned this earlier but you got a two-book deal when you signed which is incredible so that's why you're on deadline because you already have that you don't have to go through the whole pitching process to get another book deal yeah I've already, for got, book I've already got the money in the bank for book two so now I've got to earn it <laughs> <laughs> and you, where are you at in the process right now about halfway through writing it draft number one yeah halfway through draft number one yeah. and yeah I'm, I'm happy with how it's turning out it's a bit of a it's a very much a different beast from the first book it's a lot more 
tragic. So that's been a different headspace to get into, particularly when I'm getting good news about book one to kind of go back in and be like, okay, no, sad now. Got to be sad. That's hard. It's yeah, it's a funny process. Can you give us a little teaser of what book two is about? Book two is about the fall of the Romanov dynasty. And the main character is uh, Olga Romanov, the eldest Romanov daughter. I love it. Another strong woman. Mm -hmm. Another strong woman kind of forgotten by history. Yeah, I I think it's on your uh, website bio. I'm not going to I'm going to butcher the phrasing, but it says like Bryn Turnbull loves to write about women in history who fall through the cracks or something. Yeah, women who've fallen through the cracks of history. I love that phrasing. Yeah, thank you. It's, but I mean, it's so true. There's so many incredible stories of historical women who did amazing things, and we don't hear about them because history is written by the men. So they weren't. Yeah, exactly. We weren't documented. No, God no. And there, there are so yeah. many stories like that that you hear about. Yeah, and there's so many more that you'll discover. Yeah, I think so. I've got about probably. 10 books in my head right now. So I'm hoping I get to write them all. Do you? Okay, that's amazing. I was going to say, do you feel a little bit intimidated for book three? Because you already have two ideas, but no, you have 10 ideas ready to go. Yeah, I've got quite a few. Um, the question is, which time period do I want to write in? So that'll be the that'll be the big one is, do I want to go Second World War? Do I want to go 1960s, 1970s? whatever you're feeling after book two yeah Yeah. (laughs) we're really gonna be like okay what am I feeling where do I where do I want to spend the next couple of years and right that will inform it do you foresee yourself ever veering away from historical fiction or this is the genre that you want to be and this is the author you would like to be certainly for the foreseeable I like writing historical fiction there's so much in history worth exploring so I'd like to stay here at least at least for a little while well whether it will always be real historical heroines I don't know I may change that up I may end up going to someone fictional I may end up doing that to kind of take a look into a different part of history where I didn't otherwise have the opportunity yeah so I would love to know your favorite tools of the trade (laughs) What pens are you using? What notebooks? What stationery? What computer software? Give us the goods. The goods. Okay. So I write, <laughs> my first draft is always longhand. Um, I write sort of scene by scene and it's always longhand in the first instance. And then at the end of the day, I'll compile it onto Scrivener, which is my favorite uh, software at the moment because Scrivener has all of these sort of features that are great for historical fiction writers. It's got the ability to archive all of your research in one place, which is amazing because at the end of writing The Woman Before Wallace, I was looking through like two different computers, trying to track down all of the resources, everything that I had, and it just turned into a bit of a rat's nest. Whereas now I've got it all in one place and I can keep track of it a lot easier. Stationary. I'm a big fan of Lectrum books, and uh, right now I'm using a an A4-sized life-ruled notebook, which I love the feel of the paper. It's just amazing. Um, and I use fancy paper because I use fancy pens. I'm a total fountain pen convert. It's all I write with. I have a Lamy Safari, and the one that I'm holding right now is sort of a burgundy port wine color. 
And that is my like day-to-day workhorse pen. And then I've also got a bright yellow, absolutely beautiful Caron Dash fountain pen, which I bought when I uh, got signed. So it's my like celebration pen, which is why it's in a very vibrant neon color. And those are my two favorite. Those are my two favorite pens at the moment. It always does change, but it's always fountain pens and it's always fancy notebooks. Is that what you've been using those pens to sign all of your books? No, I don't use fountain pens to sign my books because I'm quite a heavy, I've got quite a heavy signature. Ah, and they would bleed through. They would bleed through. And also I'd be afraid of tearing the paper. So I use a permanent marker. That's my favorite. Gotcha. I love, I love, and did you used to use index cards, cue cards before you switched to Scrivener? Yeah, I still sometimes do. Like if I'm plotting out the book, it's easier to just put, okay, this is this scene on your cue cards and visually lay it out and then be able to kind of, you know, swirl things around as you need. Physically manipulate and move. Yeah, I. it's funny though. I've moved apartments, I think probably three or four times in the past two years. But as a result of that, I've not been able to do like the normal Unabomber, put the index cards up, set out the timeline on a wall <laughs> that, I, that I would have done otherwise. Your next space. My next space will have a dedicated index card sort of Unabomber wall. Unabomber wall. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, I think that's the benefit of cue cards for sure is being able to move it around and physically see it. But with Scrivener, you were the one who got me onto it and I can't imagine life without it now because you can con- like control f find what you're looking for easily without me rummaging through piles and piles of notes yep. and forgetting where i put it it's just easy to find within the digital space everything's easy to find and it does kind of have that index card function mm-hmm. which is great i don't mm-hmm. love looking at it as much on the screen as i do like in the physical world but um, I think it. I think it's just a perfect system. I love it. Yeah, and it keeps, like you said, research. Can you tell us about the kind of research you do, historical fiction, for your books, and kind of how long you spend researching, and like how long did you spend for your second book currently about the Romanovs? So the Romanovs book, I probably have spent, I'd say, a year on the research alone. There's so much, so much about the Romanovs. Um, that is so important and you've got to kind of get those details right because there are a lot of people who are Romanov experts. A lot of armchair historians focus on the Romanov period. So you've got to make sure that you're not going to disappoint them uh, when you're writing about their favorite time period. So there's been a lot of research in terms of like building out the timelines, looking at what was going on politically, looking at what was going on in terms of, you know, the Romanov family themselves and their personalities uh, I could write a whole book on Rasputin alone. He is such an interesting historical figure. Um, so that's one side of the research process. And that's sort of like the, I don't want to say dry because it's not, but that's the more scholarly side of research is, you know, all of the books and all of the online resources that you can find and compiling notes. The other side for me, again, going back to the fact that I'm a visual person is looking as much as possible at the clothing, at the fabrics, at whatever, you know, whatever I can find visually and texturally that pulls me into that time period. That's all stuff that I find very important because again, you know, I'm writing, when I wrote about Thelma, 
I was writing in the era of, you know, garters and slips and buttons and, you know, zips and things like that. And, and the, like clothing wise, that was such a more accessible thing to be writing about than with the Romanovs where it's corsets and, you know, layers and different fabrics and pearl buttons and, you know, not even going into all the jewelry. And, and so all of that I think is really important. I also find um, for me, I like, this is something I did for both of my, for both Thelma and with Olga is I like to find their signature scent. I love it. Yeah. Something about being able to smell that perfume. It kind of gives you a sense of how they wanted to present themselves to the world. Like what was the, what were they, what were they trying to bring across in themselves? And and you can kind of get that from their perfume, surprisingly, you know, speaking as someone who doesn't have a signature scent, who wears literally whatever (laughs) I could, whatever I got on the Sephora sample table. Now you smell like your characters. That's your signature. I know. It's not like whatever character I'm, I'm working with, but yeah, the oldest perfume got discontinued. It got discontinued in, I think the 1950s. And I found a website where these women, they find old perfume. So I was able to find a sample of Olga's perfume from 1908. Wow. And yeah, so I've got that that at home. It's this teeny, teeny, tiny vial. Does it smell good? It's beautiful, actually. It's it's Coty Rose perfume. Oh, I love Rose. They've done different versions of it over the years. I personally, I don't love Rose perfumes because I, my, my Nana used to wear it a rose perfume they're older yeah they're older ladies and very distinct old it can be very much an older smell but this Mm -hmm. particular rose perfume oh my god it's beautiful it's lighter it's this light very complex very just interesting or almost an earthy rose scent which I wasn't expecting at all I was expecting it to like hit you on the head with a bouquet of flowers. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't smell synthetic, which I Oh no, they didn't and that, back then they wouldn't have made anything synthetic. No. They would be real essential oils. No, and to a modern nose, you're kind of used to like I go into a rose perfume thinking what a synthetic rose perfume smells like. Right? I I have an experience like a proper rose perfume, but you smell this and you're like, "Oh, actually, yeah, I'd wear that." I did that with um, Elizabeth Arden as well. She wore her own perfume, which has long been discontinued, but it was called Memoir Cherie. And I tracked down a bottle on eBay. (laughs) I'm that crazy lady too. Yeah, I was like, I need this bottle. And it's so cool. I'm so glad it's not just me. (laughs) No, but we both write about historical women who happen to have these scents that you can find that detail online. I kind of feel like one of these days I want to like go and be like, okay, I have to get a signature scent. That's going to happen. Like you will. It'll be cool if one of your characters wore an Elizabeth Arden scent because she manufactured perfumes. You have to tell me if any of them have any of the Arden brands. I'm sure they will have because Elizabeth Arden, like her perfumes are incredible. Really helps bring them to life. It brings them to life. It feels like they're kind of sitting there just over your shoulder. Is that kind of like, I'm picturing your, a day in the life of your writing routine. You wake up, do you have coffee? Do you spritz the perfume? And then you start? Like, Tell us uh, what a typical writing day 
will be for you once your first book chaos is died down a little bit. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna wear that perfume just for writing, but I will wear it like you know out for a nice drink because that that's sort of the modern day equivalent of how where they would have been wearing these perfumes. So for me, it's like okay, I'll wear it out for you know a drink at the Fairmont or something. And that kind of gives me a sense of how that perfume moves and how that's how it smells. Um, But for a typical writing day, I am an early riser. So I'll get up and I'm a tea drinker more than coffee drinker. I'll make myself, you know, like a nice pot of tea, sit down and as much as possible, once first book, craziness is over. I like to do as much writing as I can in the morning, longhand. Um, I like to know which scenes I'm working on, write them all out so that in the afternoon I can type them up and do that that second round of processing where I'm condensing all that I've written and where I'm kind of not as much automatically writing. I'm, I'm thinking about it a little more critically. So that's that's really my day is writing and I'll do sort of one to two large scenes in a day. And then once that draft is done, uh, I'll print it, the whole thing out and go through it line by line with my trusty fountain pen and figure out what stays, what goes. Um, with this book, with the second book, there's been a lot more um, restructuring that I've, I keep going through and I keep restructuring it because it's got a very, um, it, the, the structure and the, the kind of points of action are much more complex in this book than they were in the first one. I find I'm going through on a much more regular basis to move scenes around and, and kind of look at them in living time and figure out where I want the rising action to be, where I want the falling action to be. So you kind of edit as you go versus writing it all the way through and then restructuring. In this book, I'm doing that. And I think it's, I don't know why, it's just, there's something about it that is a lot more living almost that'll help you at the end a lot more it probably probably feels frustrating now like you can't keep moving forward but in the long run having the structure right from the get-go will save you a lot of headache so that's I actually kind of like that I keep looking at it being like okay is this the pertinent thing is this the pertinent thing I don't want it to just be a love story like how do I how do I structure it to make sure that all of the points that I'm trying to hit get and then do you take a break kind of in the middle of the day to, from writing? Do you yes. To move. Exercise or? To move. I am a bit like a dog. If I don't get enough exercise, I go a little squirrely. So <laughs> for me, it's a lot of like being up at my cottage right now. I'll, I'll swim or I'll go for a kayak or on the stand-up paddleboard. My dog, like he will not allow me to go on the stand-up paddleboard without him. He gets very, very very upset with me if I go on a stand-up paddleboard and he's not allowed to go on. It's a partner activity. According to him, it certainly is. That's so uh, cute. I also love doing Pilates and yoga. Those are like that for me is something I love. Basically, it's like I, I need to get up and move during the day because if not, I feel like my shoulders are just going to get very hunched otherwise. Yeah. You need to give it. And even while you're doing those activities, don't you find it's all kind of marinating? Oh, totally. And then you can go back and it's a little fresher or you have new insight or something. Yeah, you can look at it and go, oh, I didn't realize that's what the point of this was. This is what yeah. I need to do. Once you're, once you're mm-hmm. moving, I think you kind of can work through those problems a little better. 
And then what, right now you're up at the cottage, what does your writing space look like there? Um, I'm writing in the back of a screened-in porch that is tucked behind, a, like, the back of a stone fireplace. Oh, so picturesque. It's actually quite lovely. At one point, it was a bit of a, my dad had this dream of us being a family band. So I'm surrounded by <laughs> guitar amps. And uh, oh my God. we've got a set of gigantic conga drums and some bongos, a bass guitar, an acoustic guitar, and somewhere in the mix is also an electric guitar. So my printer is balancing on a very large amp that hasn't been used in years. And so it's sort of this weird little Von Trapps. I was going to say, you're the modern day Von Trapps. Uh, I think that was his dream, but none of us really play anymore. My brother plays guitar, but... What is your dream writing space after kind of COVID and you are settled back into Toronto or do you see yourself moving elsewhere? What What's kind of your dream writing space? Because environment's so important. It really is. For me, it has to be bright. Um, I cannot write in a space that's dark and I can't, I, I find it difficult to write facing a wall. Yes. Like just facing a white wall doesn't really work for me. You're all about the feng shui. Yeah. Facing a, a window. I have to face a window. I have to face a window. Are you the same? Yes, absolutely. Even if my monitor or laptop is kind of blocking a little bit of the window, which is not usually ideal, I have to face the window. <laughs> yeah, or else it, you just get kind of stopped up. Yeah, it's like the wall is a physical barrier to my brain or something. Yeah, it's funny how that works. I would like somewhere that's not in my bedroom because I think that separation is kind of important to be able to move into a different space or else I'll just be thinking about it all day. But that is a dream that right now is out of my reach. I have, I'm going to use the, your terminology that you used before. I definitely kind of need a Unabomber wall. Mm-hmm. I have to be able to have a blank wall and kind of tape things as I go. Oh, yeah. And then I can photograph, I'll photograph the wall and then I can rip it down and start on a new project or something. (laughs) Yeah, the Unabomber wall is a helpful thing. It really is. But for the woman before Wallace, you wrote, I think the majority of it at multiple coffee shops, right? Or where did you write your first book? Yeah, I I prefer to write in, in coffee shops. I know that's incredibly cliche, but something about writing in a coffee shop, like I think it's just the energy of having other people around that work Mm -hmm. I don't get distracted I really don't I kind of just am happy working in my own little world there's one time I remember I was at Creed's coffee shop which I know is uh, one of your favorite haunts too yes and a guy came up to me he'd been sitting across from me and he comes up to me and he taps sort of the top of my computer and I look up and I pull out my headphones and he goes sweetie just don't work too hard Little did he know he was speaking to a best-selling author in the works. <laughs> like this hard work is about to pay off, Buster. <laughs> it paid off. It paid off. If I ever see him again, I'll be like, what? I won't take up too much more of your time. I think this has been very enlightening, and I could talk to you for hours and hours about craft and your books, and it's just so fun and cool to watch your journey flourish. Thank you. Well, I, I love, you know, I love chatting with you. It's so nice to talk to someone else who like, we, we've been on such like parallel paths. And so it's, it's been so nice to have someone in my life who knows, who knows what I'm going through. 
Yeah, it's so fun to share. Like you said, it's such a lonely business and to have somebody to commiserate with or even talk about pens and cue cards and yes. <laughs> Scrivener. I, if I said Scrivener to anybody else, they'd be like, what are you talking about? A screwdriver? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But before I let you go, can you just kind of put out into the universe what you're excited about coming up for the woman before Wallace in the short term, but also in general as your career as a writer is kind of taking off? Like what's motivating you? What are you feeling these days? What are you excited about? Um, I would love to see the woman before Wallace make waves in the States um, and elsewhere in the world elsewhere in the world. Right now it's in Canada and I'm so unbelievably grateful to everybody in Canada who's bought it and who's supporting this book. Um, I'm really excited to, you know, see where, see what it does in other parts of the world. So hopefully, hopefully that happens. That's going to be cool to see. You're a Canadian bestseller in the first week. That's insane. (laughs) This is just the beginning. I mean, it's a no brainer, but so it's going to be fun to watch. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And then just writing your second book. And writing my second book. Yeah. Head down on that one. Uh, where else can we connect with you? Buy The Woman Before Wallace. Find out about your events. Uh, so you can check out my website, which is brinturnbull.com, all one word. Um, you can find me on Instagram. That's where I'm most active on social media, at brinturnbullwrites. Or uh, I'm also on Facebook at brinturnbullauthor and on Instagram or on Twitter, just as Bryn Turnbull. Perfect. I'll link all of those in the show notes too for everyone so they can follow you, connect with you, and watch this debut journey unfold. Perfect. It was a pleasure as always picking your brain and thanks for chatting with me in your busy, busy week. Oh, thank you so much, Lou. This has been so much fun. That's it for today's episode of the Word Weaver podcast. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, screenshot and share it on social media, and be sure to check out the show notes at louiseclairjohnson.com slash podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at Word Weaver podcast. Until next time. You call it substance over style.